It was a little cold this morning, something I'm not as used to now being in North Carolina for the last 14 months. This would have been like July when I was in Milwaukee, but it's a little bit different. Okay, kids, uh, we're dismissing the children right now. <laughs> I, uh, okay, now, now we're getting the official green light. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it, this past January, I took a New Testament class, um, and one of the things we had to do was write an exegetical paper. And there was a passage that had meant kind of a lot to me for a different reason. I had a roommate who went to the Moody Bible Institute with me, who now goes to Duke Divinity School, and he and I, though good friends, differ a lot theologically. Uh, one of the things that he is is a pacifist, and uh, you know I, I am not as much. And one of the texts he would bring me to is Matthew 5.38 of Turn the Other Cheek, and that would... Uh, um, really be his foundation for why he is a pacifist. So when I had a, a New Testament class that allowed me to, uh, to write a paper on anything in the Gospels, I wanted to go to Matthew 5, 38, and actually see what, maybe what is the real reason that he's talking about turning the other cheek. Really brought me to the principle of forgiveness, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is forgiveness. Um, and it makes me think of certain examples of Corey Ten Boom and our family in the concentration camps. Uh, then at a much lighter degree, you have Lucille Ball and uh, her husband and all this wacky, stupid things she would do. And uh, he would come home and forgive her and everyone would be like, oh, Lucy, that's crazy. And then he would, he would forgive her. And everyone would be like, oh, you know, that's forgiveness. But then there's forgiveness at a much deeper degree. Uh, you know, in 1956... Uh, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott went uh, to an Ecuadorian jungle tribe and to evangelize them, and they were killed. And in 1958, two of the wives of the murdered missionaries made contact with the tribe and led a lot of them to the Lord. Uh, Nate Saint's son, Steve, moved to, to the tribe, and a gentleman by the name of McKay, uh, McKay, I think I'm saying his name right, um, was one of the murderers of his father. Uh, he became a Christian, and Steve, the son of Nate, uh, befriended McKay and says, you know, I may have lost a father, but I gained a brother of his own uh, father's murderer. And they toured the United States in the last 15 years and have spoken at many conferences. You hear that and you think to yourself, how could anyone forgive someone for so much evil that was done. And I think in our society, two things happen in response to that story. First, our culture is very uh, victim-laden. Uh, I had a conversation with someone probably five months ago who said, in, in America, whoever is the biggest victim is always the biggest winner. Oh, I'm an alcoholic. I was an abused. I, uh, I, I really had a wife who didn't love me. All right, and we, we come out as saying, oh, we're identifying ourselves as victims. We use it all the time. I, was, I did this. I, oh, man, this happened to me. Well, I'm this way because I had, a, I had a teacher who held me back and never taught me. I had a boss who just couldn't identify my strengths. 
And the real underlying idea is we're holding on to the injustice done to us, identify with it, and we never let it go because we can't forgive them. And then we find our identity in what was done wrong to us. And America loves that. Oh, the atrocities. Let's give them the stage and make them identify what, what was done wrong to them and revel in it. Oh. The second thing is we, we look at it and we think justice needs to be done. That guy should have gone to jail for killing him, uh, for killing Nate Saint. He should, he should have rotted in a prison. Yeah, he became a Christian, but I want justice. And, and I look at that, and I'm, I'm much the same way. I, I think justice should be served. And, man, how great is Nate Saint, or Steve Saint for what he's done. And I look at Steve, and I, I marvel and revel in what he's done. And how mistaken I am. If you can, open your Bibles to Matthew 5.38. Uh, this is a very, very popular passage, but we're going to preach it from the perspective of forgiveness and uh, narrow it down that way. Starting in 38, he says, you have, Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount here. Let me just give a little bit of background. Uh, in Exodus 20, everyone is kind of familiar with the Ten Commandments, even those outside the church have seen movies about the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston made it pretty famous. Um, <laughs> and what, what's happening here is, so, so Yahweh comes, comes down on the mount and gives the Ten Commandments, writes on a tablet with his finger. Uh, Moses says, I'd like to see your face. And Yahweh says, you can't, you would die. So you can see my backside as I pass. Matthew 5 is a fulfillment of Exodus 20. This now is uh, the fulfillment of the New Covenant as Jesus now, you can see face to face, is now speaking the new law, a fulfillment of it, that was, was exactly almost more of a precursor of what happened in Exodus 20. So when you're looking at the Sermon of the Mount, see it from the perspective of how unbelievable it is that the God who descended on Mount is now speaking face to face with man the new law. And that's, as he's speaking, it's almost as if the, the hand of God is writing on tablets. It's that parallel. So as he's speaking this, you've heard what it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, that's the old law. Hammurabi said, uh, you know, as so much, and the, the idea is, is uh, that if someone comes and kills two of your goats, you can take two of their goats. Someone comes and takes a life, you take their life. The idea was that <laughs> if someone wrongs you, you want to get them back fivefold, sixfold, you never want to get them back just to what they took from you. Uh, because we're often not satisfied before something was taken from us, then something gets taken, and we think, man, if, some, if we can get back more, then we'll be better off than what was taken from us in the beginning. So, so this code was an, was an Old Testament code to kind of help curb chaos so that there wasn't everyone, and you still have this in Palestine and Israel going on today, well, the bomb goes off, and another bomb goes off, and another bomb goes off, and another bomb goes off. And they're just living out an eye-for-an-eye principle of justice. But they're one-upping one e each other. Um, so the idea is, is that uh, you can't pay back more, but you can get some back, back up to restitution. Um, and the, the underlying idea is justice. We, we want justice. And, and confrontation, whatever it is, we want justice. I want an eye for an eye. I want that back. 
you know, whether it's with a, a spouse, a friend, a business associate, acquaintance, or someone we've never met, we want justice. Um, yeah, so, and you've seen this in movies. How, how classic are, there's almost a whole genre of payback movies now. Um, so a guy's wife gets killed, and then he, go, he goes and kills an entire gang of people, and this guy's family, and everyone's like claps at the end of the movie, because Steven Seagal killed like 50 people, and it's like, that's justice. It's not really justice. That's 50 people for one guy's life. It's not justice. And that's pretty much why an eye for an eye was needed, or those movies. But we identify, when we clap and look at those movies, how much that idea drives us. We want justice. We want payback. And so an eye for an eye would work with us. And, and so it, it's not just an Old Testament maxim for dealing with confrontation. It is still used every day by you and I when we calculate in our minds how we deal, pe- deal with people who wrong us. Uh, so point one, if you're taking notes, is discontentment, pride, anger, grudges, all in your life are signs of a life, are signs of a fire, uh, are, si- are smoke of a fire of unforgiveness in your life. You think to yourself, well, I'm, man, no one really wrongs me. That I'm, not, I'm not calculating anything. I'm not scheming. But there is a discontentment in your life, and somewhere along that, someone's wronged you, and you've never let it go. Uh, you have a grudge, a deep-down grudge. Maybe it's the fact that you think, oh, man, my husband or my wife, they should know better, and when they love me, then I can love them back. That's an eye for an eye. Well, my friend oh, wronged me, but when they, when they come and they pay me back, then we're good. They've met the standard. Well, you're really speaking in an eye for an eye language. When my boss, really wrong, didn't identify the work I did, but when he identifies it, then we're okay. When I get that promotion, then it's like, yeah, I really don't care. I wasn't upset. You were upset. You're a small person. We all are. But you're living by an eye for an eye. And so discontentment, pride, anger, grudges are all smoke from a fire of unforgiveness in your life. We all have it. It's all there, and you can't sweep it under the rug. So reading past that, so that's the old principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Pay someone back. And Jesus now is going to say, he's going to take that old law, and he's going to establish the new covenant. He's going to say, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. This is not Satan. So often we write it off as the one who is evil. That's Satan. Well, then in the New Testament it says, flee from Satan. Well, it's like... I don't think it's don't resist the evil one, then resist the evil one. And I, the one, the evil one here, is the one who would want to wrong us. Uh, so that, that idea here, do not resist the evil one, well, the evil one then is the one who's going to slap us on the right cheek, who's going to ask for your, your, your tunic, who's going to ask you to go two miles, ask you, that's the evil one. So that's the bracket, and now these other are examples of who the evil one is. And Jesus is saying, so to someone who is evil... Don't resist him. Come near to him. So the first idea is, uh, um, uh, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this is, this is not about pacifism. Uh, looking at this, in, in New Testament or first century Judaism, uh, was a highly relational shame um, culture of, of honor, honor and shame culture. So when someone... Uh, it's slapped on the right cheek. It's not a matter of someone coming into your house and shooting you with a gun. 
The idea is it's a backhanded slap. It's a shaming. The person's so close that they're actually able to reject you and slap you. So the, uh, the, the picture here that Jesus is actually painting is someone close in your life relationally is shaming you, slapping you uh, on the right cheek. And what he's saying is, come and turn to him the other also. Offer him the friendship. Offer him the relationship. Uh, the idea is and you're getting beat up. Okay, turn the other cheek and let him beat you up some more. That's not the idea. The idea is, if someone is shaming you that's close to you relationally, come near to him even more and offer him friendship again. And you think about that. What does that mean for us? Uh, family? It could be family. They're close. Close enough to backhand slap you, certainly. And, but what does Jesus say? He says, come near and accept them. Even though they shame you some more, allow them to shame you again and accept them. Uh, what's, the, what's the next phrase here? It says, uh, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Well, the idea here is, is the, the, the tunic is the inner layer, the cloak is the outer layer. So the tunic is like, you're like a onesie. It's what goes underneath. And the cloak is like a duster jacket that you might have. I don't, you know, when you only have two articles of clothing, it's hard to relate it because we have so many. But the, the, the tunic is not as valuable. The cloak, you might have two, three of those. It'd probably be a couple hundred dollars. It's, it's what you use. I mean, you need your cloak. Um, so the idea is you can leverage for a loan your tunic. If you need something, you could say, well, if I don't pay it back, here's my tunic. Um, but you can't, no one can take your cloak. No one can. Because it's, it's inhumane. You can't pay back the, the debt. I can't take your cloak. You need to survive. It's cold out there. You need the elements. You can't take the cloak. But you can leverage your tunic, which is le- less expensive. And so for whatever reason here, Jesus is saying, okay, so someone takes, uh, you know, whether it's fault of yours or fault of their own, if they come after you to sue you, no matter what happens, just give them your cloak. Give them your outer layer. Settle the score yourself by going above and beyond what is right. Whether fault of your own or not, forgive him for taking you to court. Settle the score and give the guy your cloak. Now, this should sound crazy to you, because it sounded crazy to the first century. You might be asking yourself, why would Jesus do that? I'd have nothing. People, there's confrontation, broken relationships all the time. If you're tracking with that, you're actually right in step with the first century church, or not first century church, but first century hearers of Jesus. So then he says, and if anyone forces you to go a mile, go two miles. Well, at that time, uh, Palestine was a Roman-occupied territory, and uh, subjects of the Roman Empire could make their citizens go a mile with supplies, weaponry, armor, and say, uh, you, sir, you Palestinian, carry my stuff a mile. And they had to. They had to go a mile. And this is really hard for the new... For, for the first century Jews to think about, because remember, in the Old Testament, all they're thinking about is the coming millennium for when they would reign. Yahweh is going to come back, a Messiah will come, and we will reign. This is wrong. This shouldn't happen. The Maccabees, during the silent period, try to take down all the different Greek dynasties that were going on there. And so, so for them, the Romans are dogs that will be killed someday by the Messiah. And that's who they thought Jesus was going to be. So when Jesus is saying... This guy's telling me to go to a mile, go two miles. To them, they're like, this, is, this guy's crazy. I would never do that. 
Someday we'll be free from these dogs and we will kill them and the Messiah will come back and judge them. Why would I go two miles? So you see, in almost every aspect of, God's, of, of a person's life, Jesus hitting them saying, in this relationship, you are wronged, go the extra mile. Whether it's relationship, finances and business, whether it's uh, uh, politically with a Roman government. And then he says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. It doesn't seem uh, overtly like a relationship, but it isn't. But it is. I mean, how often are we offended by people pestering us for money and we keep our finances so close to us that the thought of spending it on someone else who isn't worthy makes us exact, uh, actually hold a grudge to that person? And what does Jesus say? Give to them. We think, well, that person is not deserving of money. Even though it's a genuine need, a real need, all the commentators, I'm a, all the commentators say it's a real need. And what does Jesus say? Give to them. Give to them. And yet we hold on to our finances. Every area of our life, Jesus is saying, go beyond. Go the extra mile. And you hear this and we're immediately alarmed of, well, what will I have? What will be, what, what can I give? I, I, I don't want to give that. The person's not... He'll one-up me, and I'll have nothing. He'll win. I'm the loser. That should be where we're at in this by now. But point two, one of the observations from this text is forgiveness has a cost. Think in the first instance here, what's the, what's the cost? It says, so uh, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. The cost of forgiveness by not resisting the evil one there is to come near him, and it's shame. The cost of a reconciled relationship is shame. The cost of the second one is a cloak. And the third one, it's time and humility. Why would I walk another mile? I mean, you're openly in the, uh, you're, you're in the open, and Jewish people can actually see you're carrying Roman armor. You're made almost a donkey for this Roman citizen. It's humbling. And you're giving time. What's the cost of the other one? Money. The one needing to forgive absorbs the debt to draw near. Too often we think we'll forgive when that other person makes it right. That's an eye for an eye. We'll forgive as the other party pays the debt. Until we wait. We wait. When the Roman makes it right, then I'll walk two miles. When that person doesn't take me to court anymore, then, I, then you know, I'll give him my tunic when it's made right. When that other guy slapped me, oh, I'm going to draw near. I'm going to hate this guy. But when he calls me and asks for forgiveness, then I'll turn the other cheek. When I finally get a report of what that person is going to spend the money on, or I, I take him through this long test, then I'll give the money. The problem is there may never come a time when they may make it right. There may never come a time, there may never come a day when you get that phone call or they come by and ask for forgiveness. And so often the one who was victimized becomes someone who's an abuser. It's very interesting how that happens. So often it's a psychology, the one who was victimized growing up, then grows up to be someone who victimizes other people. Even though they were innocent in the original atrocity, their heart becomes twisted like the sin that was done to them. 
Tim Keller gives a great illustration of this. He talks about how he was pastoring a church in Virginia, and they did a vacation Bible school. And uh, there was a couple of kids who would come to the school, and, and they may have gotten saved, or they were very interested kids. And at the end of the week, uh, you know, they went home, but they still wanted to come to church and hang out with their friends. Well, what happened was uh, Tim, or Dr. Keller, went to this guy's, the father's house and says, you know, we'd love to take these kids. We'll, we'll give them a ride every week. They can show up at church. Uh, you don't have to do anything. We'd love to just serve. And the guy said, you think my kids are going to go to church? My kids will never go to church. I had a father who was very abusive. He was a deacon of a, uh, of a Baptist church, and he'll, my kids will never step foot in a church. And so they, you know, they never picked him up. But Tim began to realize what happened was this guy was angry by an injustice that his father had committed to him. He never forgave him. And now he was taking it out on his sons irrationally. I mean, it would probably be the best if his kids actually went to church, but he's still fighting his father, and his father's long gone. The injustice that was done to him, though victimized, is now creating all sorts of victims all over the place. I know we're in the movie The Last of the Mohicans. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, it's one of my favorites. But there's a really bad Indian in the movie who, who's ruthless. And at the end of the movie, um, one of the lead characters, I think his name is Magua, is, is the Indian's name. And, and he says, Magua, is, his heart is twisted like the evil that was done to him. His family was killed by the English, and now he's ruthless. We want justice. The underlying idea of why that happens is we hold up deeply that the evil that was done to us, we hold on to it so much for repayment, an eye for an eye, that it actually controls us. Now we're going to get vengeance. Now, we might not say that to ourselves, but that's actually what's happening. And if you follow the smoke back to the fire of why am I discontent? Why am I angry? Well, something was done to me. Well, I'll pay it back. I'll get it back. I learned my lesson. That'll never happen to me again. That's unforgiveness. And it's all over our lives. And if we wait until the payback uh, to forgive, they'll still control you. You'll never be free. Now, offense has a f- offense as a funny way of making the original offense bigger and bigger as the time goes by. You know, it might have been something very small in the beginning. Someone might not have held the door for you. Well, I hate that person now. And bigger and bigger, you hate them more and more and more and more. You know, I. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. But I was talking to Andrea about this the other day. Uh, Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> there's a, a, a scene I think in the first movie um, what, what's the guy's name? Gilbert, thank you uh, that's how familiar I am with the movies um, but Anne goes to school Gilbert is this guy, he makes fun of her first day of class for having orange hair, calls her carrot hair and for like eight years hates him I, I think there was probably some secret love going on there secretly but but you think about the idea, though, that it's like, oh, that offense, and secretly it mulls over. That person offended me. They did this, and angry, and angry, until you're waiting, waiting. It's past due, and now my anger is building interest, and it's building interest, and you pay me more, and you need to pay me more, and it's never going to be settled. And eventually, you're just a bitter old man, and you never knew why. Well, it's because then you went back to the beginning, and you actually had to confess. What was the reason? Well, they said I had carrot hair. So I was angry for eight years. Hatfield and McCoys, over a, a, someone killing a, or someone's owning a pig, like 14 people died. He went back, give him the pig, save the people's lives. Well, I was angry, he wronged me, I had to pay him back. 
and I didn't want to pay him back because, well, I'm better than him. That's my pig. And this, well, and that's like us. Relationships, marriages, friendships, family, angry because they need to pay us back. And what does Jesus say? Well, we must draw close to the one who offended you. Do not resist the one who is evil. Come near him. You pay the cost and you reconcile the relationship. It's the only way for freedom. It seems so counterintuitive. We, we read so many books on how to gain power, how to, how to get re- the edge in a relationship. Jesus says, you want the edge? Be the one to swallow the debt, come near to him, and love him. It's the only way for freedom. Otherwise, they'll control you. Like that guy with the Tim Keller illustration, they'll always control you. You'll wait for them to make it right. Never happen. You, call, you cover the debt, there's nothing left. But, it, but you might say, Jonathan, if, if I forgive them, they'll do it all over again. They must respect me. Well, forgiving them is very different to giving them the kingdom or the keys to your kingdom. Let's say uh, you own a company and your sales VP stole money from the company. Well, there's a very big difference between re-elevating them to the sales VP and forgiving them. But there, there's a difference in motivation and how you deal with them once they're no longer with the company. You're no longer seeking to run them down and run them into the dirt. You're seeking, you're, you're, you feel sorry for them. You cover the debt and you want to restore him. You want to make him someone that's free from their debt. And second, if you think that way in levels of respect and pride, you actually haven't forgiven them. They're actually still controlling you just like that. You're hurt and you're making them pay you back. Reading here before, and you have heard what it was said, you shall owe your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that uh, you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rains, uh, rain on the just and the unjust. If you keep reading there in that section, the whole idea is people are evil to God. God's still fair to them, still loves them, sends, sends water on them. If you only forgive those who are good to you, you don't actually love anyone. First John, it's loving your enemies. What does Jesus say when someone says, well, who is my neighbor? Well, and he tells us a good Samaritan story. Those are enemies. Everyone is your neighbor. You're to love everyone, forgive everyone. Now, so often in our society, it's not people far away, it's people closest to us we have trouble forgiving. Like concentric circles, the person closest to us, we have very little patience for. How could my wife feel that way? How could my husband do that? They know I don't like that, but they do it anyways. They must hate me. I can't stand for that. After all, I do for them. My best friend, how could, how could he treat me like that? He knows what I like and I don't like. And now we've learned, go, go and, and forgive the debts. Forgive the relationships. Forgive the family, forgive everything. Go and do likewise. But you can't. See, we, we may not have Romans, tax collectors, Pharisees, etc. forgive, but we do have wives, husbands, children, co-workers, uh, friends, family, and others we, who want to hurt us, belittle us. And there's no way we can let, the past and for, uh, let go of the past and forgive. If we leave it here, which so often I think is left, is Jesus forgave, let's forgive. Jesus forgave, let's forgive. 
we leave it as an example. If we go and live like Christ, forgiving others, we'll see Jesus as an example and we'll try really hard to forgive and try as we might, but the only way uh, to, come, to come at it like that is a forced smile, pride, frustration, and inside we'll be so focused on ourselves, we'll be limited in our forgiveness. If we say, Christ forgave, he's commanding me to forgive, I must forgive, I must forgive. This is what it means to be, a, to be a Christian. I have to forgive, I have to let go, I have to let go. I'm not doing very good at letting go, but I have to let go. Ha <laughs> I forgive you. Now go and live. But it's tiring. And for many of us, we either try really hard and become very frustrated and very, we, we point our nose down on other people and we think, well, I'm so much better than them. <laughs> See, I'm the one who's leaving the command out. I'm so much better. Or we become frustrated and just don't care. I think either way, uh, divorce is probably imminent in both of those situations. Broken relationships is definitely imminent. No, there's something much more. See, the command is to forgive, but none of us can forgive. We're so caught up in our own self-righteousness, we think, well, I can forgive. I can let go of the past. So many books are written at Barnes & Noble about forgive. Hey, man, just realize you're better than that and forgive. Well, that's, that's a recipe for pride. Just realize they don't really matter to you and what you want to do. Ah, well, that's pride. They don't really matter. They don't really care. You're the man. You're the woman. Whatever. Just think happy thoughts. What does that mean? Turn with me, if you can, to Matthew 18, 21 to 35. If you're still taking notes, the only way we can forgive is to recognize we're not the final judge. But instead, we have been judged and no guilty grace was given to us. So in shorter, if you want to write that, because that's a lot, the only way to forgive is to realize that we have been judged. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said, mm, no. I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven it doesn't mean if someone wrongs you 490 times, 491, you're like, ha-ha, I got you. <laughs> Levels of completion, seven's the number of completion. It's completely, beyond completely, in, uh, infinitely. Forgive him forever. He tells us this story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who, who wished to settle accounts with the servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay him, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servants released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will, pay, I will repay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. It should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do everyone, do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's a, that's a pretty hard word. See, the, the, the king forgave the servant. And in something in today's society, um, it's something like uh, four or $500 million. I mean, it's, it's a huge amount of money. What's probably really happening here is the king is going to a vassal or a governor of a land. That's the only way that they would be able to have that much of the king's money. And the guy misappropriated it. He spent so much of it, uh, or, or and maybe on himself, or lost it. He just mishandled it. <laughs> and the king is asking for the payment, and the guy can't make the payment. And he drops to his knees, asks for grace or mercy, and he finds grace. But now that guy had just been forgiven of hundreds of millions of dollars. Should have been in jail until he worked it off. I'm pretty sure the guy could not have worked it off, really. He would have needed a year of Jubilee or something to get out of jail. Otherwise, he'd be there for a long time. And then he steps outside, and he's walking along the street, and he sees a guy who owes him like $20. $20. And the guy says, oh, God, please give me some time. I'll pay it. I'll pay it. I'll pay it. And he says, nah, nah, I'm sorry. To jail with you. To jail. The king hears this, and he's like, I gave you, you know, I paid, I, I covered your debt of $500 million. And a guy owes you like $20, and you can't pay that? The, you see, the king believed one, uh, one becomes a forgiver because he recognizes how much he has been forgiven. But that doesn't happen here. You see, the man lets the king swallow the debt. He lets him cover the cost and then makes the debtor also pay the debt. He's very little regard for other people. He's so wrapped up in himself that he's out for an eye for an eye, except for when it's applied to him. See, it seems like one of the ways the king actually, in this, this parable here, has compassion on the servant or, or is able to forgive him is that he has compassion on him. He identifies with the need and forgives him. We're still taking notes. Point four is uh, don't make caricatures of people. You see, that's one of the easiest ways to have compassion on people. So often, uh, you know, in the park, there's uh, someone drawing up a, a cartoon figure of someone, um, and they elongate uh, or exaggerate certain problems with a person's character. You know, if they have long, if they have big ears, then they'll be huge ears in this cartoon-like picture. Jay Leno has a huge chin in this character-like picture. And we deal with people who wrong us the same way. We think, oh, that person lied to us. They're a liar. They are a liar. That person couldn't make good on his promise. They are the worst. They're not responsible. That person is full of hate. That person is, and we, we, when we're slandering him to other people. We're saying, well, the problem is they're a liar. And so, you know, we tried to make good with him, but he's a liar or she's a liar. The problem is, is you'll never let them go, and you're still out trying to get what's the better of them. The only way, and this is a practical step towards actually closing the cost, is to identify with them. You see, 98% of that picture is similar to you. You may not have the elongated ears or the huge chin, but you do have all the other features. 
And if instead of focusing on what's different, focusing on what's similar, you know, recognize their humanity, you know, their root similarity, and identify with it. You know, identify with the insecurity that drove them to hurt you. And stop thinking about yourself for a second and think about, I feel pretty bad. If someone had to lie to me to in that situation, it's not like I'm God and he's got to, I'm, I'm not the final judge. Instead, you think to yourself, that person probably was in a bad way, that they had to, they're so insecure they had to lie to me. And then go, and they're just going about their life living in a way that's unfulfilled, that's making them so insecure to lie and feeling compassion for them feeling sorry, wanting to cover the debt to help them. It's not about you. That's not why. They, you, there's nothing inherently wrong with you that would make you, make you be the victim into that. It's their issue in identifying with how similar you are in that. You've lied before. You lie to yourself all the time. Whether you lie to other people, you lie to yourself. You're a liar. <laughs> but when you do, when you do lie, oh, I had a bad day. I had a bad day. You see, someone cut me off. Or, man, you don't understand in that situation, I just I had to lie. But when they lie, I can't believe they're a liar. But when I do it, uh, well, there's a lot of good reasons. How about you give them the benefit of the doubt? Think about, well, they might have had a bad day. There might have been some insecurity there that drove them. People who usually lie do so because they have insecurity that they're looking for the respect of the person they're lying to. And their identity is wrapped up with the approval of that person. That's the way they do it. You need to feel sorry for that because you understand you yourself aren't God and this person's looking for your approval. Feel bad for them. Feel compassion for them. So when this king, so when the servant says, uh, you know, please, you know, my wife, my kids, don't. And he has, and he's moved and he offers him mercy. The king identifies with him and covers the debt. So don't make characters of people. Identify with them. Feel for them. And the last point, although probably one of the bigger ones, is when our identity is found in the forgiveness of much, the forgiveness of little is easy. This goes back to the first point. Our identity is found so often in being a victim. And what, 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 what strikes me about this story is how similar we are to the guy in the story, the middle guy, who uh, was forgiven much and then had no grace on other people. You see, the king was banking on the fact that I forgave you so much. If your identity is found in someone who's been forgiven much, then $20 is like nothing. But instead, finding your identity in being a victim is finding your identity in the fact that you haven't been forgiven at all. In fact, you're owed a lot, and there's, well, it, the ledgers point deeply in the fact that you've been so wronged, and someone needs to repay you, and it's like you don't identify the fact that Christ died for you. So our lives, our lives are given to grace and forgiveness from Christ, but in every day, the smallest offense, we want people to go to jail. We want people to be uh, someone cuts us off and we want to call the police and have that person arrested. In everyday life in church, we might say, well, God's forgiven us. 
how great is that? But then we go out and in our relationships with people we know and we don't know, the smallest offense sets us off. How could they do that? How do they not know? Well, you're living like the servant. You're living like that $500 million meant nothing and that smallest offense is everything. You live like you don't know that Jesus died for you. You live like it doesn't matter even if he did. I live that same way. But instead, like Matthew 5, the call is to draw near to the evil one. And we do so often, but we do it to cuff him or slap him. We have been forgiven of our sins, and now we're able to be a part of God's family. You see, if we can, if we can identify with the inheritance of what Christ has given us, if we can identify with what Paul is talking about, Think about the offenses he went through. And he's beaten numerous times. He's shipwrecked. He's in a jail. And a first century jail is not a good place to be in. Let's be honest. Jails in the 1940s, we look at it and we're like, how could anyone have lived in that? First century, probably a lot different. You know, it's probably pretty bad. And it's like nothing to him. And he hasn't done anything wrong. And in fact, they have to free him, even though the Jews keep going up to keep saying, well, he's done this and this. You know, they can't find anything. Eventually, they have to let him go, and he gets captured again. Well, what did he do? I don't know. All the injustice, what helps him is his inheritance is found in heaven. He recognizes he's been forgiven much, and so all of these small offenses matter nothing to him, little to him. You look at uh, Steve Saint. Steve is not the great man in the picture. The great man is the fact of who's forgiven him $500, $600 million dollars, and forgiving someone for killing his father is still like $20 in comparison to that. It's finding your identity and the fact that you've been forgiven much. So if we're taking notes, first point was, just to recap, look for discontentment, grudges, temper, pride in your life. There's smoke pointing to a fire in our life of unforgiveness. Point two, forgiveness demands a cost that you must pay. And coupled with that, if you think you can't pay it, that's a pretty good red flag you have idols in your life. Idols, as we look through the Bible, are not just graven images uh, of figurines in a heaven, but are functional idols that make us or break us. And if we can't, I just need this, need this guy to pay me back. I can't cover the cost. It's too much. Well, you've got an idol problem, and you're not finding your identity in the fact that you've been forgiven much. You're finding it in the wrong that was done to you. Point three, we must recognize that we've, that we've all been judged and grace was applied. Four, don't make caricatures of people. Have compassion on them. And five, find your identity in the one who forgave you. Closing, I'll just tell you a story here real quick. Um, when, I was, uh, when I was at Moody, I, um, for my first two and a half years, I worked uh, in a homeless shelter um, where I, I would preach every couple weeks. And uh, my last semester, um, one of the ministry, ministry I was involved with was, was much easier. It was just taking phone calls on campus. And it'd be two hours a week. And there'd be a radio program come on, and I would, uh, uh, someone would call then, and they'd say on the radio program, if you need prayer, 
um, call into this number, and, and they'll, they'll, someone will pray with you. And someone would call in, and I would pray with them. And oftentimes, they were not serious phone calls. Some lady would call in and ask for prayer for her cat or something. And say, ah, oh, Mr. Marbles isn't feeling well. Can you pray for him? And I don't know how to pray for marbles, so I'd pray for the woman on the phone who owned marbles. And um, I don't know if animals are in heaven. I, I don't know, but I know people will be, so I'm praying for her. So, um, so that was the common phone call. And it, so it's about 11.52 one day, and a guy calls, or a phone rings. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I got to get out of here. I got to go to lunch. It's 12 o'clock. You know, it might be Stromboli Day. And <laughs> if you're late in line, then you're going to have to eat in the pasta line. And that's the worst. So guy calls, and I'm hoping it's not the cat lady. I'm like, because that's a 30-minute phone call. And the phone, and I pick up the phone, and there's a guy on the other end of the phone. And I and just want to get right to the point. He said, hey, you know, I need some prayer. Um, can you pray for my divorce? And can you pray for my job? And I said, um, and one of the things they wanted to do is, since I wasn't a licensed counselor, they don't want you to counsel people. Uh, so I'd ask questions, how can I pray for this even more? So I said, uh, I said man, I, how am I going to pray for a divorce? Um, you know, I, I, what's going on there? He said, um, my divorce is affecting my job. And I said, how is that possible? He said, well, my wife... Uh, who I have a couple children with, is having an affair with my boss. And I'm like 21, about to go get Stromboli Day. I don't, I, I don't know how to respond to this. And he said, you know, um, what makes it even worse is, you know, we're filing for divorce, and uh, I'm still working for this guy. Um, he's also my neighbor, and my wife is leaving me to go across the street and be with my boss. And so I see him in the office, and he tells me what to do. And then I come home, and my wife is across the street with this guy. And and my wife, and you know, and he's thinking, you know, getting a divorce, and wife split custody, and my boss will also have my children. And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, so I said, man, biggest thing you've got to be thinking right now is the injustice of this situation. You, you can, I said, I, I don't know what to tell you. I have nothing in my life that even parallels even come close to that. But I do know someone who, who has. And I said to him, you know, and I'll tell you guys, well, what the, the very first offense involved Adam and Eve and God in the garden. You know, God creates Adam and Eve and to walk with him and to be with him and they backhand slapped him and they wanted to hurt him. They wanted to be like him and the relationship is broken. And how did they restore the relationship? Relationship gets restored because the father sends the son to come and draw near to the evil one and to come and be like us. 
And the difference is, is that he doesn't just turn the other cheek. The difference is, is they ripped his beard out and they beat him with a cat of nine tails. And the difference isn't that they just took his tunic or his cloak, but they ripped it and gambled over it in front of him as he's just wearing a, a small little, little cloth, as he's not just walking a mile or two miles, but he's carrying a cross to Golgotha for the Romans. And he came to settle a score, to love us, and to make right a relationship. And they asked him, they begged from him, and he gave him his life. You know, he asks from us, turn the other cheek, do all these things, and he obliterates it on his own scale. And the size of that is the biggest injustice ever known to mankind. Is that you and I nailed Christ to a cross is the biggest injustice in all of the world. And I said to this guy, I said, man, I don't know, but I do know there is a man who came to save you and love you and you nailed him to a cross. And he was nailed and he was bleeding and the shame and all the hurt that has gone through your mind penetrated his mind. And I can't comprehend what a pure mind and a perfect relationship with the Father looks like and on your behalf takes all of it on. All of it. For you. And the most remarkable thing about the whole thing is the fact that when the greatest injustice of the world is happening, almost seconds later, the greatest act of forgiveness is happening. See, he's nailed to a cross, and people are jeering him, ripping his robe, yelling at him, mocking him, and this is the ultimate restoration of a relationship. And they raise him up on a cross, and he says to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. You think in your lives, you've got big issues. Oh, that guy hurt me, whatever. That's the son of God on a cross. Think about that for a second. How much does your old guy in school or work or whatever seem like $500 million when you think about the fact that he thought about the shame, the hurt, the brokenness, things you've done and yet to do what brought on the son of God who came to restore a relationship that, by the way, we broke and then we don't act like that matters at all. People in a church hurt each other because we live like the cross means nothing. We live because an eye for an eye and inside the church, yeah, we talk about the cross, but it's a nice idea. And it's not like an actual uh, bloodbath of the Son of God who willingly gave up his life so that he could draw near and offer the relationship again. And yet to us, ah, man, I can't draw. That guy hurt me. You live like the man who was forgiven much, and $20 means everything. This is a story of the gospel. And it applies to every part of our lives. Forgiveness, marriage, everything. When our identity is wrapped up 
and what the Savior did for us on the cross. It releases our idols of not being able to forgive because we're forced to the cross on our knees and we look up and that's the most important thing. Not what that person does to us, not the payment that we need to do to make up for what's right, but the cross. And Paul talks about seeing Christ face to face. He's a real man who's five foot something, six foot something, I don't know, but he's somewhere and he wants to see you and he's going to see you. And that's a reality. Though we, we entertain ourselves so much, it's gonna happen. And the reality is, are we going to live like the $500 million meant something? Or when we get to him, we're gonna live as if we spent our lives now and this was the best part. And if we live yearning to see him, because that's the most important thing, to a treasure that lasts forever, you think about making the payment, that's a payment that lasts forever. And we identify with that, then it's gonna be a great time to see him. And if not, it's gonna be like this servant. We live for the now. We aren't living because the cross meant nothing to us. The greatest forgiveness happened and we didn't care. We may say with our mouth, Jesus Christ lives, and that's a great payment. But with our lives, if we're not actually living, it's very easy to give money, very easy to give time, very easy to forgive, then it, the, really the cross meant nothing to you. What's, what's even more amazing about this whole story is how willingly he went, how joyfully he went, how he went to the cross and, and he was thinking of us. Moments. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. A willing lamb to the slaughter. It's joyful. You know, the, before, before the night he's arrested in, in John 17, he's praying for us. He knows his impending, his impending doom. He, he predicts it in 15 or 14 with Judas leaving the room. Go and do what you need to do. 17, you know, I have to do this for them, but God, be with them. As the church grows, that they live like the cross is everything and not now is everything. So let that settle in. Track the smoke of your lives. There's a point to a fire of discontentment and forgiveness. It's a pretty good sign that the cross is minimized in your life. When you do it, do it again and again. Our hearts are so deceitful. If we could, we would have been like Judas turning over Christ, nailing in the nails. Don't over, don't think you're better than you are, because you're not. And once you do, it's that pride that's gonna take you away from the cross. Let's pray.